Welcome to the Arlington Street Church podcast. Founded in 1729, Arlington Street continues today as a gathering place for progressive people of faith in the greater Boston area and beyond. We are located at the corner of Arlington and Boylston Streets, across from the Public Garden in Boston, Massachusetts. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace. When the past appears as today, when today reflects back a vision of ourselves, leaving us taken aback, this again, still, when the phantom sights Sounds and screams of injustice join today in the plea, I can't breathe. When black America cries out, how could you do this to me? The answer cannot be, I didn't do anything. I don't know you. As a progressive community of faith, one that is predominantly white, how is it best to respond to systemic racism? What is the best course of action? These are difficult questions. Recently, a placard at a Black Lives Matter protest caught my attention. It said, Black Lives Matter. Treat racism like COVID-19. One, assume you have it. Two, Listen to the experts about it. Three, don't spread it. And four, be willing to change your life to end it. As imperfect as it may be, let's take up this analogy. One, assume you have it. This should make anyone feel uncomfortable. The immediate defensive reaction is, No, not me. No one wants to wake up, look in the mirror, and see the word racist scrawled across their face. And yet, viewed through a different lens, one that is not the lens of one's own personal intention, might one appear to be racist? The uncomfortable answer is yes. Depending on the lens through which life is viewed, things look very different. In a discourse titled, On a Certain Blindness in Human Beings, philosopher and psychologist William James wrote in 1900, and I paraphrase here, all human beings are afflicted with a blindness in regard to the feelings of people different from themselves. We are practical beings, each of us with limited functions and duties to perform. Each is bound to feel intensely the importance of their own duties and the significance of their own situations. This feeling is in each of us a vital secret, and yet, vainly, we look to others for sympathy. Meanwhile, the others are too absorbed in their own vital secrets 
to take any interest in ours. Hence the stupidity and injustice of our opinions, so far as they deal with the significance of others' lives. James is saying, in other words, that we are all so wrapped up in our own lives that we can have no real understanding of the lived experience of others. Nothing illustrates a concept better than a story. Telling on himself, James relates that some years prior, he had been journeying in the mountains of North Carolina when he and his driver passed through a small valley where a settler had cut down all the trees, burned all the brush, built a cabin, fenced in some pigs and chickens, and planted some corn between the burned stumps. James states, the forest had been destroyed, and what had improved it out of existence was hideous. Ugly indeed seemed the life of the squatter. Then I said to the mountaineer who was driving me, what sort of people are they who have to make these clearings? All of us, he replied. Why, we ain't happy here unless we are getting one of those coves under cultivation. James continues, I instantly felt that I had been losing the whole inward significance of the situation because to me the clearing spoke of nothing but deforestation. But when looked on the hideous stumps, what they thought of was personal victory, honest sweat, persistent toil, and final reward. Depending on the lens, things look very different. As millions watched Officer Derek Chauvin kneeling on the neck of George Floyd, who was crying, I can't breathe, black Americans and many others saw yet another lynching of an innocent black man at the hands of a racist white cop. It was deeply traumatizing. It was all too easy to see in George Floyd a father, a brother, a son. And yet, initially, what many white Americans in positions of authority saw was an excessive use of force with unintended consequences, or perhaps a bad cop, likening Chauvin to a bad apple in the barrel. So different were the lenses through which this event was viewed that it took four days of massive protests before Chauvin was even charged with a crime. How can we come to understand the forces at work in American society that can simultaneously produce two such radically different views? And how does one examine white supremacy and understand how it is being perpetuated? Two, listen to the experts, become a student, in order to understand the role systemic racism plays in American society, everyone must educate themselves and come to an understanding of our collective past. For just as black Americans collectively bear the burdens of the legacy of slavery, such as unequal opportunity in employment, education, housing, healthcare, 
and economic security, so too conversely do white Americans continue to reap the advantage of centuries of white privilege. To understand systemic racism, we must set aside the lens of our own personal intentions and look through a far more critical lens at our past. So what does the past have to tell us about Massachusetts, about Boston, about Unitarian Universalists, and even about Arlington Street Church? It's complicated. In 1775, just before the Revolution, its founding minister of our congregation, the Reverend John Moorhead, was a slaveholder himself. His slave, Scipio Moorhead, was not only a talented painter, but a poet as well. His story is poignant and worth telling. Scipio's drawing of Phyllis Wheatley, the first African-American woman to have a book of poetry published, appears in the frontispiece of her book. Phyllis was the slave of the Wheatleys, who were family friends of the Moorheads. In her book, Phyllis included a poem entitled To S.M., a young African painter on seeing his works. In the poem, Wheatley praised Scipio and hoped that their collaboration would lead to his immortal flame. Still may the painters and the poets fire to aid thy pencil and thy verse conspire. It was not to be. When our very own Reverend John Moorhead died, Scipio was auctioned in January 1775 as part of the estate sale. The slave auction took place right across the Boston Common on the corner underneath the Liberty Tree, of all places. Although soon after the Revolution, Massachusetts slaves successfully sued for their freedom under the new state constitution and slavery was abolished, the fate of Scipio is unknown. His buyer's name was not recorded at the auction, and there's no record of Scipio after 1775. In the 1800s, enterprising Bostonians and Bay Staters accumulated vast sums of money in the triangle trade between Massachusetts, West Africa, and our southern states which involved slaves, sugar, cotton, and rum. Fortunes were built upon the slave trade and in the manufacturing in Massachusetts mills of raw materials produced by slave labor into finished products. These fortunes helped fund some of our state's most famous churches where still, today, we worship. Hospitals where still, Today, we seek care in the age of COVID-19, and universities where still, today, we go to learn. Despite his personal abhorrence of slavery, gleaned from the time he spent in the South as a tutor to children of wealthy plantation owners, our very own William Ellery Channing, whose statue stands 
at the corner of the public garden right in front of the church never took a public stand from the pulpit for the abolition of slavery. Channing's hesitancy reflected his, our congregation's sentiments. Unitarians in general were not the first to embrace the cause of abolition. Economic self-interest and the desire to preserve the union competed with notions of justice and fairness, yielding different results. Unitarians, like the country, were divided. It was a Unitarian senator from Massachusetts, Daniel Webster, who crafted the Fugitive Slave Law, which required all escaped slaves who were recaptured, even in the free states, to be returned to their masters. President Fillmore, another Unitarian, signed the act into law. And yet, other Unitarians worked for the cause of abolition. Anti-slavery societies were established in many communities in the Northeast. Their activities included supporting publications that advocated for abolition, raising money, participating in the Underground Railroad, and organizing speaking tours. In 1852, the Rochester Ladies Anti-Slavery Society the members of which were attendees at the First Unitarian Church of Rochester, organized and funded one of the most famous abolitionist orations of all times. And I quote, at a time like this, scorching irony, not convincing argument is needed. Oh, had I the ability and could reach the nation's ear, I would today pour out a fiery stream of biting ridicule, blasting reproach, withering sarcasm, and stern rebuke. The hypocrisy of the nation must be exposed, and its crimes against God and man must be proclaimed and denounced. Frederick Douglass, The Meaning of the Fourth of July for the Negro, July 5th, 1852. In Boston, in our very own congregation, in May of 1854, matters finally reached the boiling point. Slave hunters had captured a fugitive, Anthony Burns. Unitarian George Ticknor Curtis, who was Boston's slave commissioner charged with returning fugitive slaves, took the action to return Burns to slavery. Curtis was a member of our congregation, whose then minister was Ezra Stiles Gannett, William Ellery Channing's successor. In response to this outrage, Theodore Parker, another Boston minister, organized a protest and over 5,000 people gathered together at Fannell Hall. In an attempt that day to free Burns, shots were fired and a federal marshal was killed. This was all too much for the normally reserved Gannett and pushed him into public opposition against the institution of slavery. Even some of Boston's most conservative mill owners who depended on slavery for the production of cotton for their factories denounced the fugitive slave law. The tide for Unitarians had finally turned towards abolition. Ours is a checkered past. 
our subsequent record is not without blemish. Yes, members of Arlington Street Church and Unitarian Universalist actively participated in the civil rights movement and marched in Selma. Membership in some of our Unitarian Universalist urban churches were integrated and multiracial, and yet much progress was lost in the late 60s as a result of the assassination of Dr. King and subsequent funding disputes between black and white Unitarian Universalists, which would later become known as the black empowerment controversy. And finally, in the 1970s, during the childhood of my memory, white Bostonians protested in the streets again, not for civil rights, but against the forced integration of schools through busing. White Bostonians eventually voted with their feet. They either put their children in private school if they could afford it, or moved to the suburbs to take advantage of the public school systems in all white towns. Actions that may appear through the unexamined lens of personal intention, as parents only wanting the best educational opportunity for their children when viewed through a more critical lens of self-examination, look like examples of systemic racism. Fact, today, the Boston school system is only 14% white. How could you do this to me? Having examined our collective past through a lens of critical self-examination, how do we bring an end to systemic racism? Our placard offers us a little guidance. Three, don't spread it. And four, be willing to change your life to end it. More specifically, in a piece published by the Catalyst Project entitled The Future of Solidality, how white people can support the movement for black lives. The authors argue, among other things, that white people need to work toward a bold and powerful vision for comprehensive liberation, not just an end to police murder. We must all work for equal opportunity in education, housing, employment, and healthcare. White people need to support black organizations and educate themselves on how to be allies. White people need to get other white people on board who aren't already working for social justice. As a society, if we're not moving against white supremacy, we are moving with it. Everyone needs to get out the vote. And finally, we all need to make friends with discomfort. This is difficult, uncomfortable work. When the past appears as today, when today reflects back a vision of ourselves, leaving us taken aback, this again, still, when the phantom sights, sounds, and screams of injustice 
Join today in the plea, I can't breathe. When black America cries out, how could you do this to me? We must answer with action. As a nation, we have been here many times before. America is long overdue to take a hard, uncomfortable, and painful look at systemic racism, not through the lens of our own personal intentions, but through the critical lens of self-examination. We must acknowledge the unlevel playing field that is America, and we must set it right. We must dismantle systemic racism everywhere that it hides in plain sight, in school funding schemes that result in unequal education, in zoning regulations that prohibit multi-unit dwellings in the suburbs, in food distribution networks that result in food deserts and poor health, in gerrymandered voting districts that result in the underrepresentation of black people in elected office, in election commissions and districts such as Atlanta, where black people stand in line for eight hours just to cast a vote, in a healthcare system that results in black people dying at disproportionate rates of COVID-19. My friends, as people of faith, we are called to ensure that our values of love, service, justice, and peace move from speech into action. It is not enough to end police violence and murder. It is not about getting rid of a few bad apples. It is time for a new American social contract that serves all of its citizens equally. America will be judged by its actions, not its intentions. It's time to change our lives. It's time to take a stand. Bless your hearts. Amen. Friends, let us join our hands together over our heart center for our benediction. What can we do with our days but work and hope? Let our dreams bind our work to our play. What can we do with each moment of our lives but love till we've loved it all away? Love till we've loved it all away. The service begins when the service ends. Bless your hearts. Where you go, where you go, I will go, beloved. Where you go, I will go. Where you go, I will go, beloved. Where you go, I will go. I will.
I will go. Where you go, I will go, beloved. Where you go, I will go. For your people are my people. Your people are mine. Your people are my people. Your divine, my Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace.